Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. And um, just as a reminder, we're moving to this new, you can hear my dog in the background there, somebody uh, <laughs> delivered a package. Um, no, so we're changing the format of this show. Um, you have been giving your feedback. It's, it sounds like you guys really like the, the, the change up, but we're going to be doing more of a co-host sort of format. Not going to have completely different guests every week. You're going to see some of uh, my favorite people uh, repeated as co-hosts rather than as interviewees. Um, we'll, we'll preserve the interviewing function of the show. Um, so if, if, if there's somebody um, who we really, really want to, uh, to interview, um, then it'll be one of, one of these uh, fine ladies who has been co-hosting, um, interviewing alongside with me. And with that, I'd like to introduce uh, Ariel Davidson. Um, you would have seen her on, on High Noon long ago, uh, but she was, uh, she was clerking for the Second Circuit of Appeals uh, in, in New York and therefore uh, not able to share her, her uh, expertise and her political opinions. Um, but now she is, can you remind, uh, remind me what the name of the law firm is that you work for? Yes, I work for a uh, firm that's based out of D.C. and Virginia called Holtzman Vogel. Uh, we do constitutional law, election law, mostly on the right. Uh, it's a great place to be. I've only been there for a brief period of time now, uh, but it's been a great time so far. So, Yeah, and, and she's speaking here in her personal capacity, but she's now allowed to do that once again, because if you're a federal employee, yes. as many people know, even in your personal capacity, you are not allowed to comment on uh, on, on politics, especially domestic politics. Um, and we do actually have some domestic politics to talk about uh, today, but first, it's impossible uh to talk about anything with regard to the situation in this country or in the world without uh, reference to the war um, in in Gaza and uh, the coming after, of course, this this devastating attack on October seventh uh, that was absolutely savage uh, towards Israeli civilians, men, women, and children, uh, over two hundred of whom are still hostages in in Gaza as as these um, hostilities continue. Um, but I, I kind of wanted to start actually at home with that um, because we, there's plenty to say about the world, uh, including the, the only 14 countries in the, in the UN uh, that didn't vote for this, this uh, Hamas supporting ceasefire idea um, as though any country that had suffered this level of attack uh, should immediately turn around and, and be talking peace. We would not be talking about this in the context. I don't think of any other country, um, but, but there's been this, this global reaction um, as Israel does does step up its its effort to actually eliminate Hamas, um, there there was sort of this this period in between where there, there was planning. It sounds now they are um, putting boots on the ground in Gaza. Uh, there there is this this more coordinated response, and the world and in, with the world including the United States and cities in the United States um, have responded with massive and sometimes very scary uh, protests like. For example, in London, you have more than 100,000 people marching uh, with pro-Hamas signage and chants, uh, sometimes overtly um, anti-Semitic uh, signage and chants. Again, um, there's this video that's gone viral from Dagestan um, with with people running around in in a uh, airport, breaking through the barriers at the airport just to get their hands on what they think might be a Jew. Uh, in, in a um, with with a plane landing from Israel, which in fact was full of apparently of of um, patients that had been treated in Israel uh, and and um, not actually Israelis. Uh, so this is, I, I guess, I would call it an attempted pogrom. Um, and then the 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 scariest part to me is that um, th these kinds of protests are not uh, just in uh, the, the Arab world and Muslim world, not just in even Western Europe, where I think people on the right have long uh, warned, and not just people on the right, you know, people like Quillebeck, right, uh, that that there is such a high level of unassimilated migration um, from from North African countries, from Muslim countries, from the Arab world, that uh, there there is effectively like you know a large percentage of the population there that that is not effectively French or German uh, or or British, right. Uh, but even here in the United States, we do see this this kind of unholy alliance between native-born, you know, far-left um, decolonializers who have this abstract reasoning, um, abstract sort of political reason for for supporting this, um, and then recent 
arrivals who have a much more seemingly lizard brain reason for supporting this. Um, so what, what is your take on just laying out the last week? Um, you know, what's, what's your take on where all of this is going? Because these, these protests are, don't seem to be fading out. They seem to be getting bigger. The, the ones this last past weekend in New York um, seemed bigger than the ones a week ago. Um, but maybe that's just anecdotal. I don't know. Well, I feel as if you're living inside my brain, Inez, uh, because the term unholy alliance is the, is, is the phraseology that, uh, you know, I've been thinking of and using in commonplace when discussing sort of the marriage between the far left and, uh, you know, or at least the, the marriage between the anti-Semitism of the academic left and the anti-Semitism of the Arab world. Uh, and I think what's allowed this symbiotic relationship to grow is that you have this racialized perception of the world through the lens of oppressor and oppressed, and it finds really firm, finds really firm footing uh, in the, the uh, Arab narrative vis-a-vis -vis Jews. And so you find that these two pockets of individuals seem to really have a common shared hatred, effective hatred of Jews. Um, and I think the one that stems from the Arab world is is quite different than the academic one, but nonetheless, the outcome is the same, right? The outcome is still defending the beheading of babies and uh, women and children and men, and also defending the rape of women and children, uh, and so and just you know the horrific massacre acts that um, many reporters and journalists have seen on video and we've actually seen leaked onto social media. Uh, and so in terms of what that means and like where we go from here, um, you know, I think that this signals to me at least and probably others as well, that this is, there's a real death of liberalism on the global left. You know, liberalism used to be kind of this two-prong approach, right? Like equality before the law was one element. And then the second element was making an effort to mitigate social and economic disparities. And I think what has happened as of late is that uh, the, the latter goal of eliminating disparities has completely subsumed any sort of notions of individual equality. And so, yeah, I think there is an element of this that um, how are we going to crawl ourselves out of this hole? Well, you, I credit you tremendously with one of being one of the loudest voices of saying we should defund the universities, we should go after their endowments, we should uh, destroy them. You know, this is this may be the bullet that takes out the universities, and God bless it if that's the case. Uh, I think that there really is something pernicious in academia that's actually preventing us from really creating an educated class of citizens. We're just creating, you know, an activist class of citizens. And it's as a Jew, it's been alarming to, you know, I found it alarming to see these protests taking place on college campuses. I would love to say I'm surprised, but as you and I both know, I'm not. Um, I saw this for quite some time when I was uh, TAing at Stanford Business School. We had some incidents there uh, when I was also in law school. I mean, this has been something that has been brewing for quite some time. And so I don't, uh, I'm not surprised. I'm sad. I'm disappointed. I'm angry. But shock is not one of the emotions I'm feeling. Yeah, I've been saying if, if you're totally shocked by this, I mean, I think there are elements that are, are surprising. Um, like, actually, the way I was putting it to a friend is, um, you know, 10 years ago on campus, all of this was there. Um, but they would have been more careful to say Zionist rather than Jew. Um, yeah. It's, it's all those things, right? Yeah, now they don't care, but, um, and, and they'll actually just put in Jew into the chants, right? Um, but I think 10 years ago, they would have said, they would have been more careful to say Zionist, um, yeah. which we all know what that meant to begin with, but uh, they're, they're more open about it now. Um, it's interesting, I, I was listening to... Um, in commentary podcast and because uh, they have up-to-date sort of coverage of what's going on because they do it every day. Um, they're definitely sort of to the left of me generally, but um, I found them useful in this. And uh, I, I think John Penhoritz was bringing up something I, I didn't know. So I, I knew that um, 
um, Camus and, and I would never know if it's Camus or Camille or the French Camus would be the, <laughs> the, the good old fashioned American way to say his name. I call him Camille for now on. Okay. That's um, fine. And sorry to any of my French listeners, apologies. Um, no, but that the split between Sartre and Camille actually happened over something really this issue, right? This, this, um, the, the idea of, of de, quote unquote decolonization and, and incorporating sort of these third world, um, sometimes, uh, colonial rebellions, sometimes just sort of ethnic, uh, ethnic strife, um, ethnic cleansing, incorporating that and folding it into the new left as quote unquote decolonialization. And apparently, um, at that point, you know, Sartre was still very much on board and Camille was like, no, my French mother lives in Algiers. Uh, what you're talking about is, you know, stirring up ethnic, um, you know, hatreds and and okaying the murder of my mother. Um, and that's where he's like started. That's because I knew that he had split and he had, not for nothing. I mean, I think he was the, the best of the existentialists in many ways. And, and, um, and anyway, but not for nothing. But this 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 split him from sort of his other hard left colleagues um, and that it was this issue that there is has to be some end to this uh, philosophical project uh, that, that you still have to find a way to justify. If you are finding a way to justify these kinds of atrocities in very like real world space, you have jumped from the faculty lounge into something much, much uglier. And I, I think this is, that is kind of what we're seeing Um yeah, and as like you, like you're saying, I don't think it's surprising, but it is, um, it is something to watch, right? These these oh, people, yeah. and I understand why people are have whiplash when because they thought it was totally sincere about the pronouns and the you know fragility of of uh, and and it is, um, it and yet about, this is compatible power. with yeah, it's about of, power. It was about yeah. power. So much of the left's social justice narratives have been about power and shaming. And using shame as a tool to exercise power over others. And, you know, what you're describing, this, this philosophical split, I have yet to find somebody to explain to me what happens when the oppressed are no longer oppressed. Are they still allowed to commit rape and murder with impunity? Or is this just a function of their status within this hierarchy? Another point to add, is this hierarchy... It, 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 going off that, is it immutable? It seems to me like the left casts a bunch of characters and no matter what, no matter what happens, that cast doesn't change. If you look at the size of the Arab world compared to, which is in billions, compared to, you know, the millions of Jews, that's utterly, it's utter nonsense to look at that and say, well, yes, the, uh, the, the, the tens of millions of Jews are oppressing, you know, uh, close to two dozen countries in the Muslim world. I mean, that's insanity, right? But yet this is how the left, this is how the left operates. This is how the left thinks. These, these, these oppressor and oppressed classes are immutable. They're fixed. They're non-responsive to circumstance, change in circumstances, consequences. They're usually tied to either some historic event or to some racialized lens, especially in the United States that uh, has been projected and superimposed outside the United States. Uh, and it's, it's completely dysfunctional because I go back to the original point. I mean, what, what, what kind of world are you creating? If you say that once, you know, the oppressor are allowed to commit all of these certain acts, which we'll get to the question of whether it's actually, you know, that there's actual oppression being done by Israel. I would disagree with that concept, but let's, you know, just to play with their premise for a bit, what happens when the oppressed population is no longer oppressed? Do Are they governed by a different set of standards? Do we expect them to behave differently than we expect others to behave? I don't know, because right now the expectations are zero, right? When you can have hundreds of thousands of people coming out in the streets showing support for rapists and beheaders, right? Because they're not held up to any standard. Um, and that's that's what the left has created. Who wants to live in that world? I don't, I certainly don't. Uh, and they don't really have an answer to that. Um, this is not a, this is, they live in a static, they live in a static regime. You know, 
it's it's interesting uh, there there is this projection going on here like um and the more that i think about it, it it is this like inappropriate projection of an american racial narrative and structure um which is incorrect in the united states uh, as as the left advances it um but is nonsensical as applied to other situations so because you you know you talk about projected ideology um, this does seem to me that the, what you just laid out does seem to me to be the pattern of thought on the left, for example, with regard to crime, right? That that if you're poor and a racial minority and you're oppressed, you can't be held responsible for, you know, immoral acts. Um, in fact, you know, and the, and the way that, for example, um, murders in Chicago, uh, which are, you know, one young black man killing another young black man more more often, many more often times than not, right? Um and that is in the same way as uh, what's happening in Syria right now, or um, the fact that Egypt has closed the, their side of, of uh, Gaza as well. Like um, that, that the the fact that actually the only um, oppressions or deaths that matter, right, are those imposed by Israel against Palestinians, right? Because the the, the real uh, you know, it's not a, a if, if it were really just about even forget about, you know, any any life. Right. But just about Palestinian lives. Right. Um, th there would be more outcry when the aggressor is not Israel. But instead, we only see this when the aggressor. And, and, and again, I'm going with the premise that you're, you're I don't think Israel is the aggressor here. I don't think any any other country on the face of the planet, having suffered these kinds of devastating and savage attacks, every single country would launch a response that was at least equal to what Israel is doing and probably more because they would not be as restrained by the international community, right? Um, if, if there was a, a Comanche equivalent raid coming across from, from Mexico, um, and, and in comparable terms, you think it's something like 30,000 civilian deaths, right, from raids coming in on the Mexican yeah. border, um, you know, we would already be sitting in, in, uh, in Mexico City. Right. Oh, uh, it's it's amazing it's not tolerated. You can't tolerate yeah. as an entity. But leaving that aside, like this projected theory of of this hierarchy in which in which if you are the poorer, the browner, whatever stupid heuristic that the left has, um, you are not morally responsible for your actions. It is kind of a projection of that. And it reminds me of when Whoopi Goldberg actually defended her against the charge she was anti-Semitic. I said she's just an idiot. Um, but <laughs> Uh, when yeah. she was talking about the Holocaust, right, where she was like, oh, it can't be racial because both sides are quote unquote white, like as though the only dividing line in, in the human universe is this black white divide in this particular yep. history in the United States. Right. Like um, yeah. and, and it, it does feel a little bit like that. Right. And there does seem to be some similarity between the excuse for like crime and violence perpetuated by people on the oppressed side of the spectrum in the United States, well, that's okay because they're reacting to their oppression, right? And there's no sort of moral agency applied there. Where, and, and so I don't know. There, there is something similar, I think. There is something projected out from that context. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, I, and what makes it even stranger in the context of Israel is that the majority of Israel's Jews are not European, they're from the broader Middle East. And so you have, you know, they're descendants of Iraqi Jews, Moroccan Jews from North Africa, Algerian, Tunisian, uh, you know, Afghan Jews. So it's the idea that you have sort of these European colonizing power uh, living in the Middle East and subjugating its neighbors. It's just not, that's not accurate. That's not a representation of what Israel is. And even if Israel were, you know, majority European, it still wouldn't make what's happening acceptable. Uh, but in the left's mind, they need they need this bifurcation. They need this racial binary in order to understand the world because it's the framework through which they are able to assign uh, good and bad. And it makes it easy. I mean, if you think about it, it makes it easier for them because it doesn't really require any nuance. It doesn't really require any intellectual engagement. It just requires you to kind of look and uh, have, you know, look at one photograph, make to arrive at a determination, and then that's it. Um, and then you feel sort of morally empowered by it. Uh, and again, it's, it's as we were talking about before, it's like impervious to any sort of nuance, change in circumstances, actual dynamics. I mean, what we saw 
what we saw from Hamas is exactly the type of behaviors we saw from ISIS. And it's very extremely troubling to imagine a world in which these individuals from Gen Z and millennials from our generation may one day be running administrative agencies and applying the same distorted, flawed logic to world conflicts. I mean, would there have been sympathy for ISIS when, you know, we were sieging Mosul? Uh, and would that have, would this have been the type of thinking that guided foreign policy when we were, when we had our war in ISIS? I hope not, because the world is not safer. The world is not a safer place when these types of paradigms are superimposed and projected around the globe. I mean, they certainly aren't working in the United States, leaving that aside, but then trying to, to export them abroad. It's complete, it's completely insane. Uh, and, you know, I think that at this point, um, I don't have an answer for kind of how you, how do you rid that sentiment from the universities? I think it's a, it's a function of you know, a lot more boomer professors hiring progressive professors and uh, these progressive professors being able to run roughshod over various departments. Um, I think it's a function of U.S. immigration policy post 9-11. I think there's a lot of factors at play, but they've definitely intersected into something really awful that, frankly, we're, we're going to have to deal with now uh, and deal with in a meaningful way. This isn't going to go away. This is only going to get worse. Uh What's driving these campus protests? It's it's anti-Semitism, but it's also anti-Westernism. These are not people that love America. These are not people that love the American project. Uh, we have a serious crisis of transmission of values. And if we're a country of values and a country of ideas, then that's obviously in some ways existential, right? Yeah, you know, it's... The illegitimacy, the implied illegitimacy of Israel in in the Middle East. Um, and yes, you can make all the, the sort of factual caveats that you did, but the, the, the frame is still the same, right? Yes, these are actually not, and some of it is simple ignorance in the sense that there are more Ashkenazi Jews in the United States. So like there's a projection that, that that's <laughs> the, the, the ethnic or demographic makeup of Israel when, when it very much isn't. Um, but, uh, you know, the illegitimacy doesn't change. Um, and, and there is this this uh, concept by which only the most recent, like, and, and that's why it, what makes it more, like, like you say, more anti-Western, more anti-European, and specifically anti-Jewish, than it does this, like, general, because where do you start the clock? Like, yeah. we were talking about the Comanche, right? The Comanche were on the land... The U.S. took uh, conquered the land from the Comanche, but the Comanche conquered it from a different tribe, right? And before then, another one. And you know, you can go back to mitochondrial Eve in this way. This whole concept of like that that you know when when did we start? So in Israel, it's very clear, right? When do we start the clock? Like if you go back to ancient Judea, then it's the land of the Jews, and then you know there's some intervening. There was a a like. The funniest part about this, of course, is that Islam is a conqueror's religion. Like it's yeah. all yeah. written there. That's <laughs> this history yeah. of conquest, right? That actually went all the way up to the gates of Europe um, and into the gates of Europe often, right? Um, yeah. the, the, the history of mankind is a history of conquest. And where you start this clock, like it seems rather to just be a cover for this hierarchy whereby certain people, I was laughing when you were saying before, laughing to myself um, when you were saying like, it's an easy heuristic, right? Um, I don't know if you ever saw the Family Guy episode where it's uh, it's Peter going through the airport and um, the guy just holds up a like a Pantone selection of skin tones next to him. He's like, okay, good. You're not a terrorist, right? Because he's white and it's just a selection. Of, like, yeah. Um, which of course was never true in the United States, right? Uh, ever no, again, but it wasn't true. Total either. slander happening against the United States now. Uh, when they're recalling, because they're recalling the post nine eleven period, and th there are many, uh, there are many things that I think the United States made mistakes about uh, in, in after nine eleven. But this like casual reference that I'm hearing all over media to, oh, you know, we remember what happened to Muslims in the United States after nine eleven. What? 
what happened to Muslims in the United States after after yeah. 9-11? I feel like the United yeah. States bent over backwards. I'm not saying there weren't nasty remarks yes, thrown yeah, about or something, but there there was no mass spate of violence. Yeah, violence none of that. Um, exactly. Yeah. I was going to say, in fact, TSA, I think, went out of its way to make sure that people knew that there was no profiling taking place before you were getting on the airplane, that sort of thing. Like, I think, to your point, you're, it's, you definitely always can find isolated incidents of things happening. Uh, but, you know, as the hate crime statistics show us, like the vast majority of hate crimes in this country are committed against Jews. Um, and it's been that way for quite some time. Uh, and so I didn't mean to interrupt you on that point, but oh, I just- Oh, no, no, no. I, I, your, I was your, on a tangent. I, um confirming yeah, your well, diagnosis yeah yeah no i mean the, the more important point besides what happened to um and whether there was profiling in airports uh is the this illegitimacy applies to the united states this presumed illegitimacy applies to america european countries israel all of the western countries all of one one might say all of the white countries may be accepting russia I'm trying to think of how they would fit Russia into that heuristic, given the fact that he's now like, like their association with Donald Trump is too much for them now. It's it, again stupid projection of that makes absolutely no sense and has no uh, basis in reality, right? No. Um, but they are trying to like it, it does come more down to to that, like the countries that are presumed illegitimate and their occupiers and colonializers. Um, that includes the United States. It's not oh, just yeah. about you know. And and it's 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 pretty clear. And if if they're legitimizing violence, this level of this is not warfare, right? This is this level of sort of savage violence. Um, the implication that it is a real implication. Um, I don't want to you know go too far afield or, or seem too hysterical, but the real implication is it's okay to do violence also in America for the sake of revolution. Um, and I think that was really brought home to me. Um, another sad incident this week. Uh, so I, they hadn't, they hadn't yet publicized uh, until recently what had happened to this Robert E. Lee statue in Charlottesville, um, which by the way uh, was, was absolutely beautiful, like a, a real work of art. Um, even aside from the political symbolism involved, it's um, th th those two statues, my, my uh, family lives in Charlottesville um, and I went to law school there and uh, it, it gave, it gave the city a, a real um, kind of, lovely European feel actually that there was, so there was this Lee statue, there's a Stonewall Jackson statue in an adjoining square. That one's also, I don't know what happened to that one, but it's gone. Um, I hope they didn't melt it too. I'm sure they did. Um, and then there, the most silly thing uh, was there, there was a statue of Lewis and Clark, um, the, the explorers that, that um, headed out West to see the Pacific ocean. Um, so it was Lewis and Clark, but then at their feet, Sacagawea is crouching um, and she's clearly like tracking something, right? Yeah. Like, Right. Um, and that was the concept of the statue was here she is like sort of leading them the way and tracking certain things. Um, but of course, the the uh, interpretation was, oh, she's like kneeling in front of them or she's she's lower than them. Right. Um, so they took that one down as well. Yeah. Um, again, all three of them as works of art, just beautiful, um, really well done. And um, like things that, that we don't see much anymore as public public displays of art that are usually much more hideous. Um, anyway, uh, so they, they melted this Lee statue down and they filmed it and they're turning it into something else. Um, but they, they, it was almost sort of uh, ritualistic, right? Like they wanted to film it. They wanted to like, um, and, and, and it's hard not to see that as a, a, a like <laughs> a kind of warning, right. About, um, you know about yeah. regime change and about what what will happen um, when when the uh, the decolonialization reaches the highest levels of uh, I don't want to say reaches American shores because I think it's already here and has been here for a long time but when when it reaches its full strength here oh yeah well history is full of you know the good the bad and the ugly and then some gray areas in between uh, and the idea that we can uh, we address history by just destroying it seems to me counterintuitive. Uh, it's also doesn't really pay homage to the fact that history is complicated. And in these types of situations where you were saying they, they created kind of this, I would almost say propaganda video 
out of melting the statue, right? And kind of the the stomping on the ashes of history in some way. It just when you start going around and taking down statues, it never stops. It it, it will never stop. That's that's the grim reality is that there's no limiting principle. And it's it may be Lee's statue melted this week, but next week it could be George Washington. And in fact, there have been calls, if I'm not mistaken. Do you remember this? That there were calls to um, remove George Washington's statue at one point. I mean, they're going after, uh, you know, not just uh, Confederate figures, but also the founding fathers who uh, also, you know, have complicated personal lives and, and have complicated histories. Um, and I, you know, I can understand why people at least feel like, you know, it, 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 again, there's just no limiting principle to this. There's no limiting principle to when they start taking down statues. And for those of us who were opposed to taking down statues, I know you were, and I was myself, um, when they started this push, I would say, what was it like five years ago? Uh, I knew as soon as this happened that, you know, in 10 years, we're going to be lucky if George Washington University is still called George Washington University. And I mean that, like that sounds, that sounds crazy and that sounds radical, but it's not because you're right. It's not about taking down, you know, quote unquote, bad figures. It's about going after the entire, the, the entire history of the United States. And that's where it's, it becomes a problem. Yeah, I mean, they've already dropped the Colonials uh, as the mascot uh, from from George yeah. Washington University. No, I, I mean, they, they already have gone after. So uh, there's a church in Alexandria um, where both Washington and Lee at different times, obviously, um, attended. They have plaques memorializing that. They, they took them down, both of them. Yeah. Um, my husband has this book called The War on History, yeah. uh, which everyone should read. Um, but... I mean, he predicted even down to the actual statues that came down. So he wrote that in 2018. Um, and in 2020, nearly every statue that he wrote about in that book came down. Um, and, but your and, husband's in good company because Alan Bloom in the Closing the American Mind in 87 also said something along those lines, too, that um, we don't we can't identify the good any longer because of moral relativism, cultural relativism. And so we're just going to start tearing things down in the process because we don't know what the inherent good is anymore. Everything's just, everything is uh, equal, but different. And so we don't know, we don't have things in society that we revere any longer uh, because we just see everything as equal, but different. And then whoever is in power, will just start tearing down pieces of history one by one. Yeah. I mean, there, there was this, this, you know, um, sort of consternation on the right, as there usually is when the left advances something, and the right kind of can't bring it itself to really just stand firmly in the breach, and they kind of like equivocate. Um, yeah. The same thing happened with with because these are Confederate statues, right? Um, and Jarrett was writing about it back in 2016, and he actually had a, a, a debate. Um, in Breitbart News with um, Timothy Sandifer, who's at, was then at, at Pacific Legal Foundation. I think now he's with Goldwater. But, um, you know, you have to realize they don't they don't make any distinction between Jefferson Davis and Thomas Jefferson. Like, um, it, you, we can have this academic debate about whether it was appropriate to put up statues to the generals of a defeated faction of the Civil War, right? Right. Um, I think it's an interesting debate. I still fall on the side of, I think um, it's fine to leave them up. I, I think the context and Jarrett writes a lot about this in the book, but um, in the context of it, uh, a lot of these statues went up contrary to like, yeah, they, they, they sort of cherry picked the, the two or three um, people who spoke at what were very like large dedication ceremonies that had like these, these sort of um, um, extremely racist sentiments, like, for real, extremely racist yeah, um, sentiments. Yeah. Um, they cherry picked a few of the things, but the reality is that most of these statues went up exactly on the 50th and 75th anniversaries of the war. They were attended by veterans of both sides, right? Think about how we now relate to World War II veterans. Um, and that's how that generation related to um, the Civil War veterans. And, and in fact, these the, allowing the South to have some pride um, in itself in the 50th mark of the war or the 75th mark of the war, um, I, I think was very much in, in the spirit of, of um, you know, Lincoln played famously played Dixie, you know, the, the day after Appomattox played Dixie in the White House, right? Like right. we had this terrible 
bloody and cataclysmic civil war that was necessary. Um, and I'm not a lost causer, so I think the war was fought um, over slavery and and all of the the sort of attendant spinning out um, of of all these other factors that were at play, like tariffs and uh, different interests and so on, all looped back into slavery. Um, but the idea that that like we should have squashed the South out of out of existence, right? Like ignores. Um, it's a very easy moral garbage, really, to, to be like, oh, we, we should have just, like, obliterated the South, um, our own countrymen who we, we fought, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we should have crushed them. Like, how do you think that, that an entire section of, like, a, of the United States was going to continue to function? Right. Like, did you want low levels of rebellion and warfare for the next right. hundred years? Like you know, th- this is, this is the sort of um, thinking that this has no contact with like the compromises that been made in, in politics and reality. Um, and so in that sense, I, I actually, like, I, without referencing to the, the, just the slippery slope, even aside from the slippery slope argument, I think that it's, it's fine and appropriate that Southern towns, you know, um, put up, especially if they're putting up statues to people like Lee um, or or Stonewall Jackson, obviously, first of all, both those men, they're commending their skill as commanders. Um, right. And second, like, Lee really did spend most of his life after the war, like, trying to prevent the kind of low-level rebellion, like, saying, no, we, you know, we fought the war, we lost, we, now it's time for us to be Americans. Um, and... You know, yeah, who knows, who knows what would have happened without his influence, honestly, like because he yeah. was so influential. Um, he had he had a anyway, it's it's hard to read Lee's biography and come away thinking like, oh, this is this is like a, a unequivocally condemnable Figure. man. Um, yeah. And anyway, uh, I, I think it's fine that 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 southern um, southern cities uh, honor their their generals um, in, in that war. They're the only part of America that knows what it's like to be conquered. Um, which, which always strikes me, you know, having uh, history, family history and so on in Poland, right. Um, that there's a certain parallel there, like that the South knows what it is to be like, it was their cities that were burned, um, in, in the war and their land that was just taken back. Right. (laughs) Um, so anyway, I, I think these, these things are, are, uh, not treated with any seriousness, but, even laying aside that entire question of like, oh, is it appropriate to allow yeah. statues of a defeated general that fought against the United States? Like, I can understand why people would say no, um, but it doesn't matter because the second they're done with the Confederates, they come for everyone else. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's not even, uh, you said yeah. 10 years. It's not even that. They immediately <laughs> did. Yeah. They immediately did. Right. Um And I'm really I'm waiting for Thomas Jefferson to go in the university that he founded in this this statue that stands in front of the rotunda at at, uh, University of Virginia. Right. Uh, It's a matter of time. Students once saved from fire, like risked their lives when the rotunda was on fire to take out the statue of Thomas Jefferson because it was so meaningful to the school to be uh, founded by Thomas Jefferson. Uh, I'm just waiting. The statue gets defaced all the time. Um, I'm just, you know, waiting for them to, the, the administration to fold and take it down and probably melt it into something horrifying. Well, I, you know, something you said earlier about how these statues came up at like the 50th and 75th anniversary, there's something meaningful in that, right? So I, you know, you remember um, at the time of, at the time of the Civil War and even prior to the Civil War, people had were very much invested in federalism and primarily saying, you know, I'm from Virginia, not from the United States, I'm from Virginia, or I'm from North Carolina. There was very much a state identity. And then post-Civil War, I think people started to, Americans started to see themselves as being from the United States. And then, you know, obviously that coincided with the growth, eventual growth of the federal government and seeing, you know, the United States as kind of a monolith and less of this uh, regional loyalty but the fact that these statues still came up, you know, 50, 75 years later, it shows that that's not a recapturing. It's not like there's a reversion to this regional loyalty or a reversion to kind of 
resurrecting the sentiments of the Confederacy. If anything, I read that as like, we have a complex history. It's nuanced. We're Americans now. The war is done. The war is over. The North won. And this is a piece of our history. I don't, I don't, I think that there's a lot of people who are willfully misreading that, those statues, as a sign that there are individuals who want to quote unquote resurrect the Confederacy. You know, if anything, that gap in time combined with the fact that people identify themselves as being from the United States, very rarely do you see kind of that regional loyalty that you saw pre-Civil War. That in and of itself tells me, to your point again, that this is, if anything, representative of the South's complex, complicated relationship with its own history. Uh, and the idea that we just go around tearing down statues instead of kind of recognizing that I think is very odd and bizarre and, and it's unbecoming of, of a sophisticated Western society, frankly. Um, it's also unbecoming of victors. Um, look, the, the, the people from these regions of America fill the ranks of the U.S. military by far. <laughs> Right. So yeah. they obviously don't have uh, a continued allegiance to the defunct CSA. Right. Um, yeah. They, they, their children are the ones who landed in Omaha beach. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Largely. I mean, and actually that was more mixed than many because of the, the broad draft and it was really everyone. But um, yeah. if you look at like the composition of the U S military for the last 80 to 100 years it's overwhelmingly it's um two states texas and south carolina they love the united states they love the united states states. yeah yeah (laughs) um so i mean there is something there's the you know the south had more of a warrior class um than the than the north the north won the war the same way america won the war in world war ii with sheer uh production and and wealth right yeah and i'm not downplaying like Obviously, they, they did find a great general and Grant and and um, yeah, but but it took them some time. Uh, they didn't have this like natural sort of martial class uh, that that the South had, and that martial class essentially went and reintegrated itself into into the United States and became our martial class again, um, mm. America's martial class again, and uh, that's actually that's a remarkable thing um, given how bloody the war was and and um yeah i just i feel like there's no seriousness and it, it and the risk that wounds couldn't have been healed and they were healed you know and they were healed fantastically so to to your point about the fact that the military recruits so heavily from uh southern states it is people fight for the united states they fight for a united country uh and that's that's a testament to you know not only that uh the north won this, the war and won it handily and rightfully so, but just the fact that the, there was a, a, uh, an ability to, for each side to move forward. Um, and I think the idea that the statues need to be taken down to move forward further seems to kind of fly in the face of the fact that we have moved forward. These statues exist for not the reasons that the critics believe they exist. Yeah. And look, it's, Jared and I were driving um, in South Carolina, in, in Greenville, South Carolina, and um, we saw a sign that said Civil War Museum. Um, and so, of course, we pulled over, right? Um, and it's this really small museum, and it is the bat- last bastion of, like, the most lost causer people you could ever imagine, right? <laughs> to the point, so, like, they were just playing Dixie, like, it's a let's say three rooms it's a small museum and it's just dixie and when it stops it starts right back up again um it's just playing dixie all the time um and it was you know just just really like lost cause or stuff right um the war isn't about slavery uh the the, um anyway uh but but with lots of interesting artifacts and stuff and it just it struck me because the there are two old guys maintaining this place um and one of them has on his car um, the sticker that says Dixie, still one nation under God, uh, with a Confederate flag. And right next to it, he has a sticker, the U.S. Marines. Um, and the irony. The guys, these, bo- these guys were both, um, I can't, can't remember what the phrase is. They, they don't say, it's not retired Marines because you're never out of it, right? Um, right. 
Right. They both served in the Marines. And it, it right. really struck me like they, even the most hardcore uh, Southern sort of attachment to this war, which again, um, you know, the South might be the only part of America that's obsessed with history. Um, sometimes. Interesting. I, what makes you say that? I think it says, says and that's why I was wondering why. I mean, I think it does have something to do with being like conquered and, and, okay. um, you know, in the North, nobody knows anything about the war, right? Uh, the war true. that they won. A, do you think, though, it's a function of, I think the North, too, is full of transplants. It's also, you know, I think there's more of an international flair to the North as well. And so you don't have as many people who feel, like, attached to the state in which they've landed, uh, as opposed to, like, being born there, et cetera. So I it's interesting though. I, I think you're right. I just am curious as to kind of, you, I, I think your exam, your estimation that it's a function of being a conquered people is probably accurate. Um, but I also think too, there's kind of a cosmopolitan flair to the North that feels uh, not tied to the land in nearly the same way that the South is. I mean, I don't know if it, I, I, I think that's true. I mean, some of the most like, and I don't mean this as a pejorative provincial, people in the United States are in New England, I think. It's um, also true. I think of friends but, being from Boston, but yes, yeah. there's a lot of people who never leave Boston. Um, no, I, I mean, these, these regional cultures in the United States are, are really interesting. Um, no, I, I, I do wonder, because generally Americans don't know much about history in comparison to other countries. Right. Um, and Look, as much as that sometimes frustrates me, that there is an upside to it, um, which is that you cannot rally Americans to war based on something that happened in 1450, which is a normal and regular occurrence in large parts of the globe, right? Um, what is yeah. what's the battle that Milosevic like was was shouting about like in in the 90s, right? Um, anyway, you can you can <laughs> maybe the Balkans are particularly. <laughs> particularly like feisty uh, no and also in this in this like long hist of like list of historical slights right ethnic and historical yeah. slights and they remember um every yeah. one of them right uh oh, yeah of course so there's there's an advantage in the sense that americans are very i think mercantile forgiving mm. um they're not apt to like they're they're quick to, americans are, are are quick to forgive actually like sort of historical um you know, they, they go to war and then they come home and they start businesses and they move on. Um, yeah. And, and the South really is the exception to that, I think. Uh, right. And maybe because it's easy to move on when you win. It is, but it's also a function too, I think, to your point, you know, comparing it to Europe, the borders were re redrawn so many times. You as a poll probably know that. Um, so the borders, <laughs> the borders get redrawn so much too that there is the sense in which you're not able, you're not permitted to move on because you're constantly being subjected um, to new borders being cast and having to kind of resituate yourself. And so to the United States, great credit, there's uh, by and large, our state borders, once they became established and once they're no longer territories, et cetera, they were states. And that was, that was pretty much it. And that's allowed people, again, to feel, um, some sense of certainty that I think a lot of the rest of the world has not had the luxury of um, through, you know, through some fault of its own and no, no fault of its own. But that's that's a privilege, I guess, to borrow a term from the Gen Zers. Now, it's a privilege we've had in the United States. Yeah. And this this whole war, both in Ukraine and in Russia and, and sorry, and in um, Israel has really brought home a number of natural advantages that the United States has and and for cultural reasons are throwing away right um you know geography still matters very much the fact that we have oceans on two sides and one corrupt but not particularly hostile power <laughs> to the to the the south and a you know friend as much as i you know make jokes about canadians um to the north right the, the, these are and, and the fact that we are such a huge country um mm -hmm. It, there's there is no forest on earth that could actually invade the United States. No, um, not not really. They even, could attempt the it. whole rest of the world. <laughs> I think if every single country decided to turn against the United States, I don't think that the United the U.S. like piece of land is a conquerable um, 
country. I know. Let them, let them invade California first. They're going to kind of, you know, if they're, <laughs> they're choosing which coast to land on. What's what's the line from uh, Dr. Strangelove? There are parts of New York, General, that I wouldn't advise you to try to invade. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I would um, probably would not start with Queens if we're gonna if we're picking boroughs <laughs> of New York City to not invade first. It would definitely Manhattan. Definitely Manhattan. <laughs> yeah, go for Manhattan first. They're gonna they're gonna <laughs> crumble like a deck of cards. But Queens, Staten Island. Yeah. Um, no, no, but this is an enormous advantage that the United States has. But it to sort of the conversation to wrap up the conversation. Um, you know, it allows us, I think, a certain separation from reality that, like, like a country like Israel just simply cannot, you know, cannot continue in this equivocating delusion about themselves. At some point, you have to take your own side in a quarrel. Um, and Israel, as it has been reminded, and all of us have been reminded, does exist in this extremely precarious geographic position. Um all the time that the threat of actual annihilation right. is is there all the time um, and every time they forget it they're reminded um, in the worst possible way uh whereas we can go on forgetting i think for a very long time even as the entire geopolitical situation around the uh, you know the world changes against the United States and against our interest. And we're moving into like seemingly into a more multipolar world, right? Um, That the U S can go on ignoring that and thinking that nothing really happens. There's no Um, cost for our naivete to your point. We can't really be invaded. There's no cost for our naivete, but there, there is for Israel and they're not naive. And that's the reason they're not taking these demands for a ceasefire seriously. Because they know the costs of believing in universal values. They know the cost of believing that everyone values human life to the degree that they do. Um, that isn't the case. Uh, that isn't the case in, in the neighborhood that Israel lives in. And uh, they know and they realize that. Well, on that note, um, Ariel Davidson, you'll probably hear from her again, uh, rotating people. Um, yes, so much so, fun in this. I love this. We should do this again. <laughs> yeah. um, so Ariel Davidson. Um, you will hear more from her. You can find her on Twitter. Um, I'm not going to point people to your legal work because uh, it is more uh, yes. both technical and private. But um, uh, you can follow her on, uh, is it at Ariel? Or just at Political L. I know. Oh, I mean, yeah, it yeah. When I, was, I remember um, that. When I at- was anonymous as a research assistant at Stanford. And so it's stuck with me now. So <laughs> I haven't had the heart to change it. Um, it's like when I adopted my dog and I kept his name that he got at the shelter. Uh, it's just, you just keep it. So yeah, it's at political L E L L E. So thank you, Ariel, for joining uh, high noon and thank you to our listeners. High noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the independent women's forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to Inez.stepman at IWF.org, uh, including comments about the new format. Um, please help me out. And then please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or IWF.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.